The scripture reading today is 1 Timothy 2, 1-7. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Chloe. All right, let me pray for us one more time. Um, Father, we thank you that you uh, invite us in. Um, you are... Uh, so far above us in your ways and your thoughts, and yet you allow us to to draw near and taste and see that you're good. Um, Lord, I pray what Caroline prayed, that Jesus, you would shine through. Um, Just show us the beauty of your your gospel, Lord, again this morning. Show us the beauty of being called your, your chosen people, your sons and your daughters, uh, the household of the living God. Um, Holy Spirit, would you teach us right now? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, if, you're, if you're just joining us, we are, uh, we're taking about 10 weeks to make our way through a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor called Timothy, who was ministering uh, in the first century in a city called Ephesus. Um, and this letter, along with the other pastoral epistles of to Timothy and Titus, which we won't get into. They really show us what a healthy church ought to look like, right? Paul says, this is why I'm writing, to, 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 um, to, to show you how you are supposed to conduct yourselves. How are you to behave as the household of God, the church of the living God? Really, it's how, how does a local body of believers uh, function as the body of Christ? Um, and you can go back and listen to, to week one of the series where I try to give an overview of the letter. Um, but I mentioned, I think it's on the screen, uh, Paul, Paul Manili, not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he kind of goes back and forth in this letter um, with these two main themes, concern for false teachers and then concern for proper conduct in the household of God. Kind of goes back and forth between that. And we saw through chapter one, and Paul jumps straight in from verse three uh, for his main focus of dealing with false teachers in the church. His concern was that the gospel will be kept central in all things, um, the, the church of Ephesus had teachers who weren't keeping the gospel central. They weren't holding fast and teaching uh, the gospel. They were using the law improperly, not in accordance with the gospel. They were essentially creating quite an exclusive church, right? Um, a, a church is this place where, for the elite, for those who meet a certain standard. And so Paul really uses himself in chapter 1 as an example to show that the gospel is actually the opposite of that, that it's incredibly inclusive in one sense, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, Um, even those who were dead set against Jesus and and his church, as Paul was, his grace overflows for those 
who have no hope of meeting God's standards. And so he spends chapter 1 telling Timothy to make sure that the church guards the gospel and defends the gospel and, and celebrates the gospel. Nothing is more important. It's the gospel that, that creates the church. It's the gospel that unifies the church. It's the gospel that, that shapes the church and sustains the church through difficult days. And this is what our church believes. That's why our vision statement says that we desire to be a gospel-shaped community of people. We're gospel people that are shaped by the gospel, and therefore we, we love one another, and we love each other, and we love Jesus, and we love our city as we join him in what he's doing. And, and so if, if chapter one was all about the gospel, that it's worth defending and, and fighting for and celebrating forever, well then in, in chapter two, Paul kind of turns, and he begins to describe what a gospel-shaped community of people should look like, right? How, how does, what does gospel-shaped living look like in, in, in real time? And in chapter two, verse one, Paul writes, first of all, or most importantly, pray. A local church, the household of God, is a primarily a worshiping, praying people. How do you do the things of chapter one? You start by praying. And the, the context that Paul is speaking about here, uh, uh, speaking about prayer here, the context is, is this missional context, right? The, the church has been saved by Jesus and then given a mission by Jesus. We read that in, in Matthew 28. He, he makes these disciples and he says, then go and make more disciples of all nations, right? So, so the church is not primarily a safe house, right? You know what a safe house is, right? It's this, this building in an inconspicuous place where you can hide out and take shelter and conduct secret operations, right? The, in one sense, the church is a refuge, right? But, but Jesus says the church is a city on a hill, right? It's, it's, we're light in a dark world. We're, we're on a life-saving mission. The, the church isn't a place that you're rescued into, and now we just kind of hunker down in safety, no, we go out as the church. We go to make disciples. We go on mission. And, and so this is what gospel-shaped living looks like, to be shaped by what God does, has graciously done for you, and then to go and tell others about what he's done. Uh, we, we, picked up this, we picked up on this in Paul's explanation of the gospel last week, right? Paul said the gospel is that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul is the foremost, according to, to his own perception of things, and the gospel is that Christ has shown Paul mercy, that his grace has overflowed for him. And Jesus has counted Paul as faithful, even though Paul says, I was anything but faithful, right? I was, I was a violent enemy of Jesus. But Jesus counted him as faithful, not by ignoring Paul's sins, but by taking the penalty of Paul's unfaithfulness and his sin upon himself on the cross and then transferring his faithfulness and righteousness onto Paul. But, but then Paul hints at the missional aspect of the gospel, of what Christ has done for him in, in verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, I've received this, this mercy for this reason, that, that in me, a, a terrible sinner, Jesus might display his perfect patience to those who are to, be, who are to believe in him for eternal life. Right? Paul, Paul says that his salvation, there's this outward emphasis to the gospel, there's this outward emphasis to what God has graciously done in, in your life. The, the, the church should, should have this outward missional evangelistic emphasis. Those who've been recipients of God's grace, recipients of his mercy, we should li be living examples of his grace, right? We, we should be living examples of the gospel. We are called to gospel-shaped missional lives, right? We, we don't just kind of sit on our blessed assurance in, in secret. We, we share the good news with others, we should be on mission 
But how do we do that? Well, Paul says the first step in doing this is to pray. The first step is not to to get into your missional communities and and plan how you're going to be missional to your friends and neighbors. How are you going to reach the people in your life? The first step is not to put on a Hope Explored class and invite friends and family to discuss the gospel. The first step is not to, to, to preach the gospel from this pulpit. Although those things are, 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 are good things and we'll do them, it's just they're not first step. They're not of first of all things. Paul says, first of all, I urge you to pray. First of all, pray. Are we praying? Is that our first instinct? Here's the thing about mission, is we live in a culture that's, that's hostile to anyone claiming absolute truth, right? Our, our culture says that you can live however you want to live. You, you can believe whatever you want to believe. You just can't impose those beliefs on others, especially when it comes to religious beliefs. That's, that's actually changing a little bit, isn't it? A lot of times we are imposing beliefs onto others, but it can make things uncomfortable for Christians because in one sense, our message is pretty absolute. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's pretty absolute, isn't it? Um, speaking of Jesus, Acts 4, verse 12, says there's, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven, give, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Remember Paul's doxology of praise that we looked at last week in chapter 1, verse 7. He's praising the king of ages, the only God. He says it again here in chapter 2, verse 5. There's only one God. There's only one mediator. There's only one way into relationship with God, and that's through Jesus. That's very absolute kind of truth, isn't it? But on the other hand, even though our message is exclusive, our witness should not be. Jesus commanded us to make disciples of all nations, right? No one is to be left out, regardless of race, nationality, economic status, right? Regardless of which part of Belfast you live in, the absolute exclusive claims of the gospel are to be made known universally. So that in, in, in that sense, the gospel is incredibly inclusive, right? It's, there's no regard to background, Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the only qualification needed to be a recipient of the gospel. It's the only thing we we bring to the table. So the only thing that Paul says, here's what I bring. I'm I'm a violent man. I'm, I'm a blasphemer. I'm a persecutor. So in that sense, the message is for all people. And we share the gospel then with all people. It's it's what gospel-shaped people do. And Paul's reminding Timothy in this passage that our hearts must come in line with God's heart. That's that's his point here, that that we we should desire what God desires, and what God desires is for all people to be saved, right? He sent his son into the world to, to seek and to save sinners. As recipients of God's grace in the gospel, the, the church joins God in his life-saving mission, Right, Because we're surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. They don't know the salvation of Jesus. We're surrounded by people who, who shared our former destiny, which was hell and eternal separation from God, if nothing changes. And so as followers of Jesus, who are on mission to these people, what do we do? The first thing you do, the, the most important thing you do, 
is to pray. The first step is not planning. The first step is not uh, proclaiming. The first step is praying, right? We know it's going to be difficult, don't we? We know accepting the gospel might be hard for some people. We know that some people would think we're mad for believing this. We're aware of our weakness as we go out on mission, aren't we? Well, Paul says here, there's an answer to those things. Prayer. Do you you want influence in the lives of the lost people around you? Do you want influence on presidents and and kings and, and MPs and local counselors? Do you want to see people go to heaven when they die instead of going to hell? then pray. And so if, if you think again of the, of the structure, put that back up on the screen, Paul, the, the structure of, Tim, of Paul's letter to Timothy, if the first section was dedicated to the concern for false teachers in the church and for gospel centrality in the church, then the next two chapters, chapters two and three, is his first section on what proper conduct in the household of God. If we are brought into God's family by the gospel, and, and we're shaped by the gospel, these next two chapters begin to show us what gospel-shaped living looks like in God's household. And Paul says it begins with the most, what's, Paul begins in his description of that with what's most important, prayer. And, and specifically his concern, his specific focus in, in talking about prayer here is that it have this outward evangelistic focus in our prayers. So he writes in verse one, first of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made, for, be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Right? So, so Paul's point is to pray, but, but he's really wanting us to, f- wanting to focus here on, on whom we should pray for. His focus really isn't on the four types of prayers there. Right? He's, he's, try- he's piling up various terms in reference to prayer for their cumulative effect which is to call us to offer all sorts of prayers for all sorts of people. And so his point is that we should pray earnestly for all people. That word all at the end of verse one, it means every kind, the whole, in all respects. He's saying we should pray for all kinds of people. And as we've seen already, the, the, the false teachers, they were, they were trying to limit salvation to a small number of religious elites. And, and so Paul, he, he smashes their teaching by reminding them of the gospel that it's even for the worst sinners, like Paul. It's for everyone. And so we are to pray for everyone. There's no one who's off limits in our prayers. He even includes kings and all who are in high positions, which would have been jarring for the Ephesian Christians because you have to remember that, that Paul's writing here under the reign of the Emperor Nero, who, who violently persecuted Christians. It's quite possible that Paul himself was martyred under the reign of Nero. At this time, there's, there's very few, if any, Christian rulers in the world, and yet Paul is telling them to pray for these pagan leaders. He's telling them we should pray for the rulers that we suffer under. Pray for the leaders who may hate you. Pray for the leaders that you don't agree with. Pray for the rulers that you don't approve of. Pray for the leaders that you wish weren't in their positions. No matter who they are, we pray for them. Which is upside down in our culture, isn't it? 
We live in a time that seems more judgmental and divisive than ever. We live in a culture where you're expected to, to, to draw a line in the sand and say, you're either one of us or you're an enemy. We live in a culture, a country that's been doing that for hundreds of years, right? Whose side are you on? Are you, are you one of us or are you one of them? I, I, was in a, I took a taxi at, to work last Sunday and the, the driver got talking about what I do and I'm my pastor and he's like, is that like a priest? I'm from the other side. He didn't really understand. So Actually, he thought I said plasterer at the, at the beginning. <laughs> and the conversation got really confusing. Um, and then we got it back on track. And he's like, oh, okay. I'm from the other side. Um, it's not a Northern Irish thing. It's a, it's a human thing. It's a worldwide thing. Hop on social media, media for a few minutes, and you'll see how this plays out. Right? If any kind of allegation comes out against someone, whether it's substantiated or unsubstantiated, you're expected to, to hate that person and say they're no good. You're either, uh, they're an enemy, they're vile, you're either completely against that person or you're completely for that person. Think of the political rulers and leaders in our country. It's pretty divisive, isn't it? It's difficult not to roll your eyes in frustration Paul says gospel-shaped people, our initial response shouldn't be frustration and anger. Our initial response should be to pray for them. He tells us not only whom to pray for, but also what we should pray for. His, His specific instructions were to pray for leaders that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That word that, it means in order that, for the result of. He's he's saying, pray for those who are in authority over you, your leaders, so that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. Lives that are godly and dignified in every way. What he's saying is, is multifaceted, but one of the goals of our praying is to pray for peace amid persecution. Right? We, sh- we should pray for leaders in such a way that, that promotes peace and consequently enables the church to flourish. We should pray for those in authority over us in such a way that the church can then thrive peacefully and proclaim the gospel freely. It's not a selfish prayer to save us from any kind of suffering. No, it's an altruistic kind of prayer, right? So we can freely be on mission to those around us. It's a, it's a good thing. It's a missional thing. It, in the first century, Paul's writing here during this period known as Pax Romana, it's the Roman peace, which allowed for roads to be built and and trade routes to be established. The the way was literally paved for the gospel to be spread across the Roman Empire. It's not that the gospel can't spread amid persecution. It can, and it does powerfully. But in the context of peace, Christians and churches can can freely live out that that call to Christ and to demonstrate the life of Christ and to live gospel-shaped lives for all to see. Right? And praise the Lord, we currently live in this kind of freedom, don't we? We, we, we? We're free to live out the implications of the gospel among the people around us. Much more freely than other parts of the world. And that's a really good thing, and we should be thankful for it and pray for it to continue. We need to remember to pray for our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea and Turkey. Places where their peace is in jeopardy or it's, in, it's non-existent. In various degrees, they cannot live out freely the gospel in those places. 
In many ways, our, our issue isn't so much experience in a, experiencing persecution, and, and therefore we lack the freedom to live out gospel lives. Our, our main issue is that we maybe lack that at all, and we get comfortable and we live lukewarm lives and therefore stop living out the gospel. So Paul may have written something a little bit differently to us. But here's what Paul is getting at, right? Put yourself in the shoes of a Christian living in somewhere like North Korea where you have a leader that's against you. You, you, you have a leader that, that that's, uh, opposes everything that you believe in and persecutes you. Could, you can imagine how easily hostility and, and, and hatred could grow in your heart towards that leader. But Paul says here, pray for them. Pray for them so that we can lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. What he says there in verse 2, to peaceful, quiet lives, godly, dignified in every way, it reminds you back to chapter 1, verse 5. Remember that? Paul says, the aim of these instructions is, is love that issues from pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. We'll kind of harken back to that verse quite a few times through, the, through this letter. He's saying this is the kind of family, this is the kind of community we should be, living peaceful and quiet lives, not quarreling, right? Not antagonistic, not divisive. We're, we're different from the culture around us. We live godly and dignified lives, holy lives with gravity, with seriousness, lives that are shaped by the gospel. And in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, this is a good thing. This, it's, that word good means beautiful. It, it's a beautiful thing when you live this out, and it's pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior. Right? He's given us the goal there again, that our lives and our hearts would align with God's heart, and we become like him. And verse, verse 4 tells us about him. Paul says, here's what's in God's heart. He desires people to note to be saved. He desires for all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's who God is. And this is the, the, the crux of what Paul is saying here. He's been saying in chapter 1, you're a gospel community. The, the, the gospel must be central in everything that you do. It's, it's because of the gospel that you're a church. You're a gospel-shaped community of people. What's the gospel? Paul's simplest definition in chapter 1, verse 15 is that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he points to that again here in chapter 2, verse 3. God desires sinners to be saved. He desires all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why he sent his son. And so what Paul is saying here at the start of chapter 2 is, is as the gospel-shaped people that we now are, our hearts should come, come in alignment with God's heart. Our desires should come in alignment with God's desires. And he desires sinners to be saved. So much so that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross on their behalf. And the primary way that our hearts come in alignment with his hearts and his desires is through prayer. Right? So not only do we, we pray for peace amid persecution, but we also pray for salvation for persecutors, right? We pray for rulers and leaders, and even persecutors would come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? It's really difficult to hate someone when you're praying for them. It's difficult to despise someone and to push them across that line that we draw when you're praying for them. 
In fact, the opposite is what happens. And when you're praying for someone, you can actually begin to love them. You see, if, if the aim of the community, of this family, is to live godly, peaceful lives, and, and from that comes gospel-shaped, Christ-like love, that means we become like the God of love. Our hearts are aligned with His. We want what He wants, and He wants sinners to be saved. He wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because He loves them. And so we join Him in loving them, firstly, by praying for them. That's how our hearts come in alignment with God's heart, is through prayer. This is what gospel-shaped living looks like. That Christ came into the, to the world to save sinners like us, people who didn't deserve his grace and mercy, that the, the fact that his grace overflowed for us when we least deserved it, that should change us, right? It should align our hearts with God's heart for, for lost sinners to be saved, right? And if we want to be a community that experiences and produces this Christ-like agape love, Paul says, make your first priority prayer. Pray for all sorts of people. Pray for those who have authority over you, even if they're persecuting you. Pray so that the church can freely operate and live out these gospel lives before the world. This is an exhortation to pray. You're gospel people. You can't hate those who hate you. Why? Because God didn't hate you when you were against Him. We patiently love and extend grace because that's what God did for us. The gospel informs how we now act. We pray for sinners to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So, not only is Paul giving an exhortation and a command to pray, he's also giving us the motivation for why we should pray like this. Why pray? Not only does he tell us whom to pray for and what to pray for, but also why we should pray like this. And he gives us a theological motivation. In other words, a motivation that is based on who God is. And we get this in verses 3 to 6. I've already covered partly the first motivation in our praying, that God desires the salvation for people. That's why we pray. Right? With pr- verse 4, Paul lets us peek inside God's heart. And what you see is his goodwill. We could easily get uh, bogged down in weighty discussions on the atonement and what does it mean for God to desire the salvation for all people. And some people try to argue that this verse teaches universalism, the belief that all people will be saved, right? That can't be what the verse means because the rest of Scripture, even the rest of this very letter, makes it clear that not everyone will put their trust in, in Christ for salvation. And some use this verse to argue that, that God's not in total control because his will has been thwarted, that he desires everyone to be saved, but not everyone will be saved, therefore he's not in total control. Well, again, you can't read the rest of Scripture, right? Read, read things like Job 42 that, that says the explicit opposite of that, that, that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. He's, he's sovereign over all. And we, I won't get sidetracked into this morning of trying to explain Arminian and Calvinistic views of atonement this morning, although I'm happy to have that conversation. But what I want us to see here is, is why Paul is saying this. What is he trying to communicate? I think he's, he's countering an exclusivist tendency in these false teachers. 
Right? He, he's countering their, their downplaying of the importance of evangelizing the Gentiles and the pagan sinners. They, they were teaching that salvation was for those who meet a certain standard, and Paul's saying that's absolute hogwash. God desires everyone to know the truth. Right? So however you understand the extent of the atonement, this passage clearly teaches the free and universal offer of the gospel to every single human being. But by speaking of God's desires, Paul is showing us that this is an offer that is a bona fide expression of God's good will. It doesn't lead us to universalism. It doesn't mean that God's not in control. But what it does mean is that God loves all people. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is what's inside God's heart. And so, because God desires the salvation of all people, we should pray for the salvation of all people. It's really as simple as that. So we pray for our lost family members. We pray for our friends and our leaders and, and even enemies. We, we pray knowing that God loves them and that he desires their salvation. Discussions of election and free will and the atonement, however important you may think they are, they, they do not have any implications of whether we pray for the salvation of people or not. Understanding how God saves has no bearing on the fact that we're commanded to pray that he will save. And so we pray, knowing that's what he desires. The second motivation behind our prayer is we pray because God deserves the honor and the praise of all people. Verse 5 says, there's only one God. There's not one God over this group and then one God over here and, and, and that way everyone can worship God in their own kind of way. There's, there's one God that, that, that deserves the praise of all people. Isaiah 45 is striking in this. Isaiah 45, 21 to 22 says, there's no other God beside me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. And he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's the motivation for our prayers. It's the motivation behind all of our evangelism and our mission to those in our city and in our neighborhoods. We, we know that there's one God and he deserves the praise and the honor of all people. Worship is the goal of our prayers. This is the heart of the Lord's Prayer, remember, where we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy across the world. It's this prayer, it's a petition. It's, it's saying, God, would you be seen as the true God by all people? Would your name be honored as holy over across the world? We pray persistent prayers for all kinds of people in the world to come to a knowledge of a saving knowledge of God so that they can bow down and worship him. Worldwide worship is a motivation behind prayers. We long for God to get the glory that he is due. The third motivation behind our prayers is we pray because Christ died for the rescue of all people. We read in verse 5, not only is there one God, but there's one mediator between God and humanity, Jesus Christ, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That word ransom, it literally means to, to pay the price for the release or the rescue of a prisoner. That, that, again, that verse is the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? 
God, the only one who is completely holy in all of his ways and who is completely just in all of his judgments, he stands over against us sinners who are completely deserving of all of his judgments. Therefore, we desperately need a mediator to pay our ransom. And praise the Lord, he graciously provides us with that mediator, his only son, Jesus Christ, sent from heaven to earth to save sinners, to be the mediator who would pay the ransom of our release. And there's no one like him. There's no one like Jesus. In fact, he's the only one who could be the mediator because he's the only one who's completely unique in his ability to identify with both parties, with God and mankind. He's he's able to identify with God because he is fully divine, fully God. Colossians 2 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity bodily dwells. But he's also able to identify with humanity because he himself is human. He's the eternal word who was in the beginning and spoke creation into being that put on flesh and became one of us. And he dwelt among us. And since Jesus was was and is and always will be fully human, like us in every way, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15, he is uniquely qualified to stand in the gap, to bring together God and humanity. There's no one like him. Not only is he unique in who he is, but he's unique in what he did. It says he gave himself as a ransom by dying for us, even though He didn't deserve death. Jesus had no sin, yet he died in the place of the sinner. Right? We were the ones who deserved to die. But he paid the ransom. That's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? That we had no hope of paying the price of our sins. God alone could pay the price. And he did so in Christ. In Christ, God took the full payment of our sins upon himself. And in the process, he rescued us from sin and death that the payment was, was made in full on the cross and our rescue was made. Hallelujah. Lastly, not only is he unique in what he did, he's unique in what he does. He wasn't only our mediator in the past through what he did on the cross, he continues to live as our mediator right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Like right now, at this very moment, as you take breaths in and out of your lungs, Jesus is standing before God, interceding for us on our behalf right now. He's the constant, continual means by which we approach the throne of God in worship and prayer. What glory we have in Jesus, our mediator. He also leads us on mission, right? Remember Matthew 28, Jesus gave that great commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, and he says, I'll go with you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's unique in that he empowers and he enables us in all that we do. He sends us on a rescue mission in a dangerous world, but he doesn't leave us to do anything alone. In fact, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So he continues to lead his church by his word and through his spirit. That's a powerful motivation to pray, isn't it? It should make us pray bold prayers because of who our mediator is, our representative in heaven. That's why we pray. Lastly, in verse 7, we're nearly done, we see the, the implication of prayer and these motivations for praying. Right? This, this leads Paul somewhere. He said in verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher 
and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Right, so, so first and, and, and foremost, we pray. Mo- most importantly, we pray. Most effectively, we pray. Before planning, we pray. Before preaching, we pray. If you do anything, pray. Do you get it? But as we pray for God, to God, for all people, this should lead us to preaching His gospel and to teaching His people. Yes, Paul was different than you and me. He's an apostle. But I think what he says in verse 7 applies in large part to every follower of Christ. Because, because we know that, that God desires the salvation for all people, because we know that he's, he's worthy of the praise of all people, because we know that Christ died as a, a sacrifice to, to rescue all people, we should then begin to share the gospel with all people and, 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 and share that good news. And you see that play out in a couple different ways in Paul's life. He was a herald of the gospel. That's what that word preacher means. It doesn't mean pastor. It doesn't mean a professional minister. It means a herald, a messenger. You, brother and sister, are to be a herald of Jesus this week, every single one of us. We herald the gospel in our ordinary lives. We tell people that they don't need to be afraid anymore, that they don't have to fear death, that, that Christ is the king, he's, he's conquered death. Eternal life is freely available in him. We herald Jesus. And Paul, he said he also was a teacher. And so after people trust in the cross of Christ, we teach them the commands of Christ. That's the great commission. He told us to, to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. We teach them the ways of Jesus. Again, this isn't the sole job of pastors. It's your job too. Are you, are you heralding the gospel and are you teaching the people in your lives the ways of Jesus? This is the result of God's purposes and the work of Christ on our behalf is we pray with confidence and we preach with boldness. We pray with confidence and we preach with boldness. Why? Because we're gospel-shaped people. What other way do we have to live but in response to his grace? This should, this should be the, the, the main purpose of our lives now. Everything else in your life is a secondary purpose. Your main purpose, right, is because his grace has overflowed for you, his grace should continue to overflow in and through our lives to other people, right? And, and our hearts should come in alignment with his heart's We should want what he wants and desire what he desires, right? What's in his heart? Love for lost sinners. And that happens primarily through prayer. Primarily through prayer. God unfolds his plans through our prayers. And we pray boldly because God loves sinners and desires them to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray boldly because he deserves their every praise. We pray boldly because he sent his son to pay the price for, for the sins of sinners. That's why we pray. That's why we share the gospel with others. This is the response of being gospel-shaped people. This is what gospel, what gospel life looks like. You've been saved by, by his grace. You've been given a new identity. You've been brought into his household. It's Paul's image that he uses in this, in this letter, Right? This is the the household of God that you're part of now. 
This is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. A privilege. And Paul, as he tells us then how to conduct ourselves in this household, he says, it all starts with prayer. Be a people who pray. And next week, we'll look at the, le- the rest of chapter two and into chapter three, where Paul continues to look at family life in God's household. And as you probably know, it's, it's tricky. It's a tricky passage, right? It can be difficult to, to understand and to handle well. So would you pray? Would you pray for me this week? Would you pray for our church to have humble hearts unified in the gospel? And um, he's good. He's good, and he will continue to be. He'll continue to lead us every step of the way as we fully depend on him. That's what we're learning this year again, right? It all comes back to that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Live in total dependence on me, and that looks like being people of prayer. Okay. Let's stand and pray.